My name's Sam Stewart, and I don't listen to the Order 66 podcast because they don't have any hot sauce. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. radio.com Broadcast live on D20 Radio's Justin TV channel. You're listening to the Order 66 podcast. Brought to you by Gamer Nation Studios, D20 Radio, and MapsOfMastery.com. What is up, Gamer Nation? GM Chris here, and it is, uh, oh gosh, Sunday, July 28th, um, and uh, this is an un, uh, interesting episode. Uh, this is actually a follow-up episode uh, to our prior episode, episode 14, Alarming Questions Part 1. This here is, um, well, it goes without saying, Alarming Questions Part D. D. And uh, I'm all by my lonesome here, uh, due to my co-host still being in the wilds of the Philippines. Uh, but I'm really not by myself, because I'll be joined in just a moment uh, by the continuation of our discussion we had uh, uh, about a week ago with um, uh, Jay Little and Sam Stewart, uh, nay, Jay Little, uh, for the rest of this uh, interview. Um, and obviously, listeners to the podcast uh, most likely listened to episode 14 and know what we're talking about, and we're, we're finishing up that interview tonight, right here for you going to answer the questions that we did not get to in our last episode. So there. Um, before we do continue, however, uh, it, it is important that we, we do do this. <laughs> I said do. Hello there. What have we here? Good news. Before we get into our episode proper, we do have a couple quick announcements. Um, Not a whole lot for you tonight. We really want to get into the meat, guys, so we can finish up our interview. But more importantly, we do want to take the time to remind you all about the announcement we made last week. There are, uh, probably at the time you guys are listening to this, three days left in the Order 66 Kickstarter that is currently running and is over a 1,000% of goal right now. Again, we are completely humbled and blown away. Um... But when faced with such extreme overfunding for what originally started out to be a very small Kickstarter to fund our fees and server costs and equipment bills for the year, um, we didn't know what to do with all the excess funding, and so we kind of let you guys tell us what to do with it. Um, So in addition to all the electronic swag that's going to be coming to all of our backers in the terms of uh, uh, D20 Radio and Gamer Nation Studios produced uh, uh, modules... um, uh, and other goodies, uh, such as uh, uh, ebook short story by noted author Wayne Basta, uh, Roll20 tokens uh, crafted by GM Dave, and of course, a boatload of beautiful uh, uh, science fiction uh, Star Wars themed map tiles from master cartographer Christopher West. We are also offering all backers the chance to buy half price tickets for the forthcoming Gamer Nation Con. And uh, we talked about this last week, but we're just amazed that we're going to be able to do this um, now, thanks to your support. 
uh, March 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2014, Plano, Texas, Gamer Nation Con, the first annual Gamer Nation Con, will be happening. And you guys can head to GamerNationCon.com to find more details. But again, three days left to pledge on the Kickstarter. Any pledgee has the opportunity to pledge at a certain level, which will get them a half-price ticket, or simply add $15 onto their pledge to get a half-price ticket. Normally, uh, uh, online registration, pre-registration is going to be 30 for the weekend or 40 at the door, and you guys have the chance to come and game with us and just have a kit and caboodle of fun. And it is confirmed, our guest of honor will be none other than Jay Little. Uh, lead designer for Edge of the Empire, uh, X-Wing Miniatures, um, and just an all-around pretty cool guy. Uh, But he'll be there um, as our special guest of honor, and uh, we want you to be there too. So go check it out. Uh, A few days left to pledge to the Kickstarter, guys. And while you are Kickstarter pledging, be sure also to head to the aforementioned uh, Maps of Mastery, um, actually for Numenera, um, Christopher West, uh, Maps of Mastery, um, Longtime sponsor of the show and brilliant RPG cartographer uh, is actually running a Kickstarter right now, which is well funded, but you guys still have the chance to get in on it to get some uh, printed poster maps of some of the amazing work Chris did for Monty Cook's upcoming Numenera game. So uh, go check that out at Kickstarter as well. Do a keyword search for Numenera or Maps of Mastery and you can pull it up. So there, there is that. And that's all I got to say about that. So there. So without further ado, folks, uh, let's get into this. He doesn't seem to take a hint, this guy. I was beginning to wonder if you'd got my message. Messages from the Edge. Boy, am I glad to hear your voice. I think it would be wise if you took advantage of my knowledge in this instance. All right, as said, we are finishing up with uh, part two of Alarming Questions uh, with Jay Little and Sam Stewart, and um, we're going to move into that right now. So, Sam, continuing with our combat questions, um, Mm -hmm. uh, lastly, we had uh, one from our very own Darth GM who wants to know, if I activate steely nerves to ignore a critical injury affecting my willpower checks... And then during the same encounter, I get another critical injury that penalizes my presence checks. What happens? Do I, I need to spend another destiny point to activate it again to start negating the penalty to presence? Can, can it be activated again uh, since I've already used it on willpower checks? Does Steely Nerves suffer a breakdown? I have to go into regression therapy because I'm asking too much of it during one encounter. It can only handle so much. It's just an activated talent, damn it! Steely Nerves was just a cool sounding name. It doesn't really impart impervious feelings. Just leave the poor talent alone. Yes, that's that is his question. Um, so. <laughs> no, no, no. That's well. I'm happy to tell Darth GM that um, that that uh, that one talent can actually handle that much. So, really? Uh, no, no. It's it the way the talent is worded. Um, since it cancels um, the ongoing effects. Uh, sorry, the ongoing effects not in facts um the ongoing <laughs> effects for the remainder of the encounter it um does shut down any ongoing effects that um that would fall into its category so it would um take care of it would take care of will um a critical injuries effect ignoring willpower checks and also a critical injury effect that penalizes pe- um presence checks so you wouldn't have to activate it again nope 
You just act activ- activate it the once. That talent just got a lot cooler. Yeah. Well, it it is, I'll admit, a very limited use talent because, you know, it only works for those critical effects and only when you have gotten punched in the face already. So <laughs> we wouldn't want to uh, limit it too much. Got it. Got it. But, and theoretically, actually, you could activate it at the very beginning of Encounter anticipating you're going to get punched in the face, although that might be... That might be too much. I don't know. Your group might throw the destiny points at you if you start yeah. spe- spending them willy nilly. I don't. I don't <laughs> Guys, know. I just want to make sure it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what do you say we move on to a topic of questions that I imagine you are very excited about because I know it's one of your favorite things in Star Wars. Ah, uh, uh, yes. And that I would think be I know what you're going to ask. Starships and vehicles. Yes, sir. Well, look, I know it's one of your favorite things. Uh, you know, we talked about it, obviously, when we had you on the show last. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's universal, man. Every Star Wars player loves starships, you know? I, yeah, absolutely. Um, I know our listeners do, and they have brought the questions. They, they, boy, did they bring them. All so, right, well, let's see what I can do. <clears throat> okay, first and foremost, back east, he wants to know this. Mm-hmm. The talent Hidden Storage, page 137 states that a Silhouette 4 starship could conceal humanoids within its compartments. Now, seeing as there are only three possible ranks of hidden storage and a humanoid has an encumbrance of five, how is this possible? Well, uh, basically, it isn't possible yet. But uh, I, know I've, I know I've used this caveat a couple times already, and so I apologize for using it again. But um, you're... Um, Hidden storage was absolutely designed with forward compatibility in mind. Gotcha. Um, it is very possible that some that it'll become available in some other means somewhere down the line, in which case you might be able to get encumbrance five, six, seven. Who knows? Ooh. Yeah. And honestly, uh, at this point, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so Han Solo's, you know, smuggler's compartments would be like, High le- installed by somebody with a, just a crap ton of, of XP under his belt, potentially. Or, yep, absolutely. Or he would have used the uh, smuggler's compartments on um, in the Starship Vehicle Modification section. As it's well. Very true. Very, very true. true, true and keeping in mind, of course, it doesn't have to be in a Starship. Um, you can The hidden storage compartment, I believe, should work in pretty much anything. So you could build a hidden storage compartment into your droid, for example. Okay, so people might be reading this talent and, and applying one specific use to it. I, okay, you've really framed that up for me. So when, you know, I, so for for at least Edge of the Empire specific play, if somebody wants Millennium Falcon style smuggling compartments, go for the go for the ship attachment. Well, at least for now. At least um, for now. Yeah. There's no reason you can't use this talent on a starship, and it absolutely makes sense for um, little things, right? Or putting it on a you could use it on a starship that you had already filled up all its hard points too um as a way to modify it just a little bit more Uh, but you're not limited to that gotcha that's what i'm saying okay yeah so next up venthrak comes at us with two questions Mm -hmm. the first one is um there are actions in space combat that create effects that last, quote unquote, until the start of the next, uh, until the start of the player's next turn, like boost shields, um, or quote unquote, until the end of the player's next turn. Thing like things like evasive maneuvers. In the game's open initiative system, however, a player might not act in the same point in the following round, so combatants can lengthen or shorten the duration of such effects by going later or earlier in the following round. Can this be used to gain the benefits of, for example, evasive maneuvers, without suffering any of its disadvantages? And is that intended? 
Um, the answer to that is yes and yes, actually. Um, so one of the things we had um, to deal with when we created the dynamic initiative system in the first place was the fact that we we couldn't just do what some role-playing games do, or some of our role-playing games, in fact, do, like the 40K role-playing games, mm -hmm. where you can have an effect that just lasts till the end of the player's next turn. Mm -hmm. Or, more specifically, we could do that, but we had to acknowledge that if we did it, we would be setting up the situation where the player's next turn might be very soon or much later. However, uh, to be perfectly honest, the, uh, ch the other choices for that would probably be a little less appealing. We could have done it until the end of the round, which might have really sucked if you were the last person to go in the round. <laughs> True. Um, or beginning of the next round or whatever. But we actually, when we started playing around with it, we liked the idea that um, it gave you a, it gave you something to think about, and it also encourage it might encourage some players instead of fighting for the uh, first player slot to actually go last. Like the pilot, you know, the pilot pulls evasive maneuvers and then knows that it will um, last until uh, after, you know, everyone else who is shooting at him goes and then he can suddenly do something else. Or he can time it so that his evasive maneuvers um, stop, um, basically stop acting just long enough for somebody to take a shot. Right. I mean, it's a little tricky. He's always going to leave himself a little exposed if he's the only pilot on the ship. But uh, but in general, it lets, it definitely gives you a little more tactical flexibility, and um, that was definitely intentional. Okay. Well, I it, it's 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 again for those of us that are just learning this system that have been weaned on others, where we're still still some of us trying to get used to the dynamic <laughs> initiative. It's oh, it's hard to think in those terms sometimes. Oh no, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, um, and. I can totally understand the confusion. Um, besides a few um, bouts with Wifrup, this is actually the first game I've ever worked on or played that um, has the whole dynamic initiative thing as well. So <laughs> when I first started doing it, it was a little new for me too. Well, a little new. It was new. It was new. completely new. <laughs> when you first started, you know what? Yeah. yeah. A year ago, a year and a half ago. Uh, if, yeah, yeah, almost. <laughs> almost two years. Yeah, a year and a half ago. <laughs> the only advantage I have over um, in playing this over everyone else is that I've been able to do it a lot longer. <laughs> so, Venthrek's other question uh, was mm -hmm. about the sniper shot talent. Specifically, he wants to know, can the sniper shot talent be used in starship combat? The the description says it applies to non-thrown ranged attacks, which gunnery attacks are, but it also says it adds one difficulty in addition to the difficulty based on the attack's range. And, of course, range difficulty doesn't apply to starship combat, so... Right. No, it's a uh, it's a definitely a good question. And the intention of the talent is no, that it would not work on starship combat. Um because it uh, because it applies because it deals with um, difficulty based on range, mm -hmm. um, the intention is for it to be working with personal combat. Um, also, um, boosting a starship weapon's range is a lot bigger deal than um, boosting a uh, personal weapon range, which is yeah, which is one of the big reasons why starship um, attack difficulty is compared via silhouette. Excuse me. Yeah, silhouette instead of range. Right. Um, now, uh, now that being said, 
if the GM really thought it was appropriate or, you know, a cl- climactic moment or whatever, then they could probably fudge it. Um, you know, I don't think it would break the game if you did, but uh, rules is written. Well, rules is written. It is a little unclear, but um, the intention is definitely that it should not be used for uh, Starship combat. Okay. All right. So I'm going to get your I'm, I'm going to get your brain flowing here and let you lay the wisdom upon us. Te- <laughs> teach us a great one. Um, Infinity Doctor returns to us uh, with a doozy. He wants to know. Oh no! Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> well, he he wants to know how do firing arcs actually work in the game? He says, I, I can see that ships have defense zones and that weapons have firing arcs, but the movement system is abstract. I mean, movement seems to take place entirely within a given set of range bands without reference to relative positioning. So how do you determine which arc a given ship is in at any given time? And and say to cloak shapes, just open fire on the aft of my wayfarer, you know, placing them in my aft arc. Do I now have to take a maneuver to put them back into the fore arc of my cannons? That's a uh, this is another good question, and that one the answer is not quite so easy. Or I suppose it could be easy, and the answer then would be maybe. No, um, <laughs> ki- ki- sorry. Kidding aside, um, the 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 whole the abstract maneuver system in especially in starship combat is sort of predicated on the idea that you maybe um, that the fly or drive maneuver doesn't always have to be happening for you to be moving around in space. Okay. Um, or, sorry, to make maybe to make that more clearly, the intention of the fly and drive maneuver is to move over distances, to basically pick another target in space and get closer to it or further away from it. Let's say move between range bands, potentially, or... Yes, exactly. Okay. But the idea, um, but the in- the intention is, and one of the reasons that you can pick your that you can always force your opponents to attack whichever arc you want. The idea there is that, especially for small ships, for anything silhouette four or smaller, you're always in motion. Um, just because you didn't um, do the fly or drive maneuver to go straight ahead, or to do anything doesn't mean your ship suddenly stops dead in space it's flying it's just not going anywhere specifically maybe you're bobbing and weaving maybe you're circling around an asteroid Hmm. maybe you're just pulling a j-turn or uh i don't know what a 3d equivalent of a j-turn would be a z-turn maybe (laughs) oh no it's a kroigan turn a Kroegan, a Kroegan. So I was thinking it was Z turn, but that's just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's right. I knew uh, all the I knew all those days um, play testing uh, X wing would be useful for something. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a Kroegan turn. So, um, but all of these maneuvers are sort of are the idea is to abstract them out. And so, when it comes to firing arcs and defense zones, um. That's why the defender always chooses the defense zone that the attacker is attacking because it, the idea is that he's maneuvering always to keep the attacker in his you know in whatever arc happens to be the best defended. Um, however, it's also assumed that you can always maneuver to get somebody in your gun sights at least momentarily and snap off a shot, and that's why gain the advantage exists but it's also sort of sort of nebulous is that the idea of gain the advantage is in some way 
you have um, you've gotten the drop on your opponent. Maybe maybe you've latched onto his tail and he's unable to shake you. But it could also just be that you did a head to head pass and he flinched first, perhaps, or something like that. And whatever it is, it's long enough for you to put your shot where it um, where you want to and to ignore his defensive bonuses. Okay. Um, as a sort of another way of describing it, it's also why stay on target and um, and evasive maneuvers, I mean, by description, those are also maneuvers where your ship is moving. They just don't move you in space. Right. You're just, I mean, you're, you're dogfighting, for lack of a better term. That is it, exactly. Now, the Wayfarer, of course, is a, a slightly more interesting case because it's a bigger ship than Silhouette 4. So the Wayfarer might actually have to move to put the cloak-shaped fighters back in his front arc. Um, just because that's a bigger ship, so he doesn't get that sort of benefit of always, uh, you know, always declaring the attack zone. I mean, sorry, always picking where the attackers are hitting him. Right. Um, so with bigger ships, one, once you're beyond a certain size, it becomes a lot easier to, um, to sort of narrate out, um, how two ships are interacting with each other. If two Star Destroyers, for example, are alongside each other and trading broadsides, it's pretty easy um, just based on the, the, the description the GM proposes um, to figure out how which sides those star stars are facing each other, which guns are going to be able to shoot at each other, that sort of thing, or two Nebulon B escort frigates, or two or a um, Corellian gunship versus a Corellian corvette, or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so with the so with the cloak shapes. On the Wayfarer specifically, for that specific example, um, you probably would have to take a maneuver to get them around into your front arc again, and that's just the penalty for having a big, slow, cumbersome ship versus two nimble starfighters. Right. Which, well, it kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know, man. When I, when I watch Star Wars films, it seems like there is a level of effort that goes into turning a large ship. Um, mm -hmm. You know, whereas, you know, when you're in a snub fighter, it doesn't. It, it's just the act of flying. You're everywhere. You're zipping about constantly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, great example of uh, star um, starships having a hard time turning would be in The Empire Strikes Back when uh, Han gets uh, three Star Destroyers to almost run into each other. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I yes. <laughs> yes. Of course, the first time my wife ever watched that, um, I remember her saying, what, what? What? They didn't see they were about to ram into each other? That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... Just because it's hard to turn doesn't excuse Imperial incompetence, I guess. Boom! Ooh. <laughs> Yowza. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully that, hopefully that answers that. I, I, think, I think so. I think okay. so. Um, so our erstwhile ship engineer, Jaeger Grita, um, has a, a, a detailed question. Uh, about the retrofitted hangar bay. Uh, it involved a whole lot of math, so I, I really paraphrased it. Um, uh, it. Basically paraphrasing it as this. So I understand that if I have a Silhouette 5 ship uh, with the basic mod, it mm -hmm. can carry up to a total of Silhouette 5 vehicles in its hangar bay. Uh, for example, you know, one Silhouette 3, one Silhouette 2. Absolutely. Uh, to fill it up all the way. It's the modification that option that I'm unclear on. 
can I apply it five times or once? And what do I apply? Uh, one modification increasing maximum silhouette capacity by five, or can I apply plus one increases in maximum silhouette capacity five times? Or do I add the silhouette's maximum silhouette capacity on top, basically doubling it the first time I add the modification option? Hmm. How does the modification option work, in other words? Absolutely. Um, he had it the, let me count, uh, third time. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Or maybe it's the second time. But in any case, what it, the right one is uh, plus one increase in maximum silhouette capacity five times. Or to put it another way, if you manage to install all five mods and you pass the progressively more difficult uh, um, checks to do so, mm-hmm. your hangar bay could hold a total silhouette 10 vehicles. Got it. So, so a couple starfighters, but you'll... This uh, this uh, this hangar bay uh, mod is not certainly not something to get a full on um, light carrier, right? Right. Okay, uh, that's easy enough. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it, actually, just with one mod, you could manage to put two starfighters into your wayfarer, though, which was totally not intentional. Wait. Oh wait. Are, oh, are, are you <laughs> sure? I. I oh. <laughs> are you sure you got okay it wasn't planned or anything right you didn't no no uh, no no we w- we certainly wouldn't right i mean it's not like starfighters being carried in a wayfarer is the thing or anything is it no 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 they they've never done that in the u right no never no okay never no no not, not that i'm aware of i'm I, I honestly sam i'm not that knowledgeable about star wars so i really couldn't tell you yeah i i don't know i mean honestly they just hired me off a street corner yeah yeah. You want to come in? <laughs> hey, little boy, you want to come make a game? <laughs> you want to come make games? We got, yes. <laughs> we got free candy. Uh, <laughs> and all the booth babes you can stare at. This conversation suddenly got really meta, didn't it? You know, we do that. <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry, but I, I, I have digressed us, so I apologize. <laughs> hey, man. I'm the man leading the horse to water. That's all I got to say. All right, moving on. Yes. Um, Nashville uh, comes at us and says, can you elaborate on ship encumbrance mechanics? Uh, There was very little info on the core book on the scope of cargo and how GMs could price up mundane, large-scale items like ore or building material. Could you designers uh, give us some pointers on how you calculate encumbrance values for different ships? Also, are there any plans to offer more specific trading mechanics or at least more information on the subject in the future? Absolutely. So the entire – the idea of encumbrance to begin with was to – basically simplify the whole concept of weight mass and uh space because if you're if we were doing a like you know a really detailed game about a game about hauling or trading things we'd actually need to take all three of those into account we need to account for the uh, mass of whatever it is that you're well i suppose all two uh, clearly uh that's why i'm science fiction not full on science but i forgot <laughs> weight is a function of mass based on gravity <laughs> But um, that aside, so you would need to take account into mass and volume. So, the, you know, we could have something that's really heavy, but it's really tiny. Or you could, um, and your ship could only carry one of them and have a whole bunch of empty space in their cargo hold, but their engines just can't move any more of that. Right. Or you could have, um, you know, five, um, 500 cubic meters of 
feathers, and uh, those those feathers are going to take up a ton of space, but they're going to weigh almost nothing. Right. So the idea with encumbrance was that it was ne- by necess- by necessity going to be a bit vague, um, in exchange for avoiding trying to calculate mass and weight and. Uh, I mean, mass and volume um, ratios and how much a ship could hold of one or the other. Um, so, yeah, so as far as that goes, the... Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so, sorry. Sorry, I got got a little off track there. So as far as um, how you encumber it, um, calculate encumbrance capacity, there are some examples of um, items that... I mean, so take a blast rifle, for example. You know how about how big a blast rifle is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you should assume that when 10 of them are packed up in a, car, in a crate, the total encumbrance is going to be half of what those 10 blaster rifles are um, put in, just put into a pile because it's a lot easier to carry a crate. Right. Roughly half, give or take. Um, as to whether we're going to offer more detailed informa- more detailed information or specific mechanics for calculating encumbrance in the future, unfortunately, that peeks into the uh, what are we going to do in future supplements. So, I can't uh, I can't deal with I can't answer that one specifically. But it certainly would be some uh, uncharted material for us to deal with, um, and uh, it might it might be interesting to do it sort of depend it probably depends a lot on uh what the fans seem to want to hear so uh hearing a question like that is uh definitely uh definitely good for us to know um also on uh trading mechanics um specifically we do have some trading mechanics in the whole um rarity section in chapter five um which basically calls out the whole the idea that if you want to engage in trading and you know and just buying goods in one place and selling them somewhere else and the gm doesn't just want to say you buy the uh, you buy the spice here you sell it here your profits 10,000 credits congratulations if you want to sort of get into a little more nitty gritty on that you know and the first option's totally legit if you don't want to spend too much time figuring out the details but you can use the rarity options to Basically, your goal is to find somewhere where the rarity is lower based on those rarity modifier table, where like core worlds, things you get a um, you lower the rarity of stuff. Major trade lanes, you lower the rarity of stuff. Right. And then you want to take it somewhere where the rarity gets bumped up, like a colony world or something. Then um, basically, you just compare the two extra prices, um, see what your uh, see what your profit is, and make a. Uh, and you can make negotiate tests to increase your profits off of it. And there's a few other guidelines in that section that talk about some very basic ideas for um, how the GM sh- can use those rules to actually simulate trade. Basic ideas you can build off of. Exactly. Exactly. I could I could go to Mustafar, where lava has a rarity of you know one or zero, and I could mm-hmm. I could you know bottle it up in my my ever heated lava bottles, and I could take it to Hoth, where lava is going to have a rarity of you know four and Make myself a lot of money selling yeah. that lava. That 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 P- wonderful, wonderful lava. Until it cools down. In that case, all you've got is rocks. Well, you forgot about the you know lava heating bottles. Oh oh right 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 yeah. 
I would think you could just do without selling the lava and just make a brisk trade selling lava heating bottles because those sound pretty fantastic. You know, I have an idea, man, and you just you got to tear it down. What's up with that? Why? <laughs> why? Well, you know, I'm, not, I'm done. I'm done. I'm just trying to be a consultant here, and because I'm trying to be a consultant, I'm also going to need my consulting fee of ten thousand dollars from your profits. Would you take some lava? <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's hot lava <laughs> uh, but yeah the the, the one yeah, the point um, Nashable did have is that in the core book there are not a lot of uh, we don't have the inco- the prices for like ore and stuff right but I think you have a very good point when you're describing there that um the GM can sort of extrapolate what the rarity of something like ore or grain or lava is going to be based on where they're going. And he should feel free to set a, set the, uh, rarity, uh, the, uh, rarity very, very low for somewhere that has a lot of it. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Darth GM who peppered us with a lot of questions, he's got three regarding starships. All right. And they were good. Actually, he had more, but these these were the good ones. Sorry, Phil. Uh, uh, <laughs> these, were, these were the good ones. He says, okay, I'm just not getting how pilot-only maneuvers are supposed to work, specifically for Silhouette 5 ships and bigger. If those ships can only have one pilot maneuver per round, how does accelerate and decelerate work? Does the pilot have to fly the ship? Um, if they're spending their maneuver doing that, how can the ship ever change speed? Never mind, perform any other maneuvers. All right, excellent. Well, so that ties into the question yeah. we were talking about earlier with yeah, yeah, the dogfighting maneuvering. Mm-hmm. Um, so flying the ship doesn't require you to spend a maneuver, as as we talked about before. Um, just going places requires you to spend a maneuver. So just um, just flying around in your general area, you could accelerate just doing that. You just wouldn't be heading anywhere in particular you're heading somewhere but it doesn't really matter where you're going at that point you haven't picked a destination although especially in these smaller ships where you um where you only have one pilot as he notes that's one of the reasons you can always um just like in personal combat suffer uh some strain and suffer some strain on your ship to um perform a second maneuver so there you could accelerate and go somewhere if you wanted to or accelerate an evasive action or you know accelerate and whatever or you could just downgrade your action to do two maneuvers and if you're if you're flying a capital ship you probably have a crew of mechanics that can you know work on their turns to soak up that strain absolutely absolutely well capital ships can't do the multiple maneuvers but it's a but it's assumed that capital ships have multiple pilots now. Exactly. Right. Now, you're not going to be doing tons of move maneuvers in a capital ship. Um, you're still limited in how many of those you can actually do. But you can have one pilot moving the ship in a, in the, in a certain direction, one pilot handling accelerating or decelerating. Um, and as you pointed out, like three or four people handle, keeping the strain down or running the other parts of the ship. Gotcha. Okay. His next question, he says, uh, gain the advantage. Mm-hmm. States that an opponent can try to, to can try a gain the advantage action on their turn, but an increase of one to the difficulty for every time he or his opponent has gained the advantage on the other. Is that per combat? 
So if I gain the advantage of my opponent and they successfully gain the advantage on me, the next time I try it, I'm rolling against a plus two increase to my difficulty. I mean, eventually, back and forth, back and forth, it could be nigh impossible to succeed to get the advantage action after a couple rounds of combat. What does this what does this difficulty represent? I guess I'm just trying to conceptualize the fluff and feel that goes with the mechanics. No, absolutely. So the uh the idea with gaining the advantage is it's supposed to represent um two pilots out trying to outmaneuver the each other. So we certainly didn't want to gain the advantage to go indefinitely. Because in theory, you know, in theory, then we could have just run into a situation where everybody gained the advantage on everyone else and it never stopped. Um, I mean, somebody would probably fail eventually, but we didn't have that sort of built-in, like, ridiculous point. Um, so by increasing the difficulty by one each time, again, theoret- it could go on forever, but it's a lot less likely to do so. So... Um, with that, so there's the mechanical reason, which is to keep dogfights from getting too out of control. But then the um, simulationist reason is gain the advantage is our way of representing two hotshot pilots going at it, and one of and basically each one trying to outmaneuver the other. We definitely we ran one playtest game where a Tie Fighter was going up against a Z95, and they subsequently gained the advantage over each other. Um, like I think it was like three times until the Z95, who had the much better pilot, the in fact the PC pilot, finally locked that in, and um, the Tie Fighter failed his gain the advantage check. Um, but the idea there was that um, this pilot was really good, and so was the player character, and they just kept do- weaving, dodging, moving back and forth. One would get in front of the other, then the other one, then the other one would shake them, and they kept working their way out of the atmosphere um, because they were fighting on a near a planet's surface um and it was just tenser and tenser and each time i was wondering if the person could get that um make that final check to um gain and hold the advantage over the other player and that's the other reason we wanted the difficulty to increase every time is so that because it became harder each time you would gain the advantage and then the other player would be faced with trying to gain the advantage on an even more difficult check and that check would be even harder, and so they'd have to choose. Do I want to try and go for one more step, and if I succeed, I'm almost guaranteed that the other player can't go even one step beyond that, or do I still want to take a shot and see if I, and even though I'm at a penalty, see if I can hit them? And so that's the other thing about it, is that even if you, um, somebody has the advantage on you, you can still shoot them. It, the idea is that with the abstract maneuvering, maybe you get a snapshot off, you manage to spin in front of them for just a second and fire off a burst. It's just going to be more difficult. Gotcha. Um, and their shots are going to be a lot more easy on you. So basically, that, that was the idea. We wanted to figure out a way to simulate the dogfighting back and forth without um, a lot of really, really complicated rules. So we just created one rule that, or one one action that uh, was trying to encapsulate all of that. Makes sense to me. Yeah, sorry. I Like I said, sorry, I do really like the Starfighters. And so... <laughs> well, I, no, it, I, I find it, I find it to be rather elegant. Uh, one rule works. It's only one rule I got to remember? Awesome. Yep. All right, so Darth GM's last question about starships wanted to know, um, so firing a starship weapon at a character, mm-hmm. should we be applying the uh, Table 7-4 silhouette comparison chart 
which I believe is found on page 235 of the core rulebook, um, which it's obvious intent is from, you know, determine the difficulty from ship to ship. Should mm-hmm. we be applying that comparison chart to such an attack where it's a starship weapon firing at a character? Every other iteration of Star Wars RPGs has had some extra difficulty uh, hitting characters with vehicle weapons, be it a change in scale bonus or a, a penalty on a, uh, on attack bonuses in vehicles compared to the progression of defense numbers for characters, you know, low attack versus high defense. Mm-hmm. Is that still in here? Should, should it be easy to hit characters with starship scale weaponry? Well, the uh, answer is yes, you should apply the uh, silhouette comparison chart. And in doing so, that is going to actually make the check rather rather hard to do um because a regular person is silhouette one um even a uh, x-wing is always going to be default hard because they're silhouette three and the person silhouette one um the idea is that if you're um what chart you use whether you're using range to determine difficulty or you're using silhouette difference to determine difficulty is based on the weapon you are using at the time um or the weapon slash the vehicle you're in um there are a few there are a few strange cases um but uh, sorry it is it is the weapon and then there are a few odd cases where like the speeder bike has um a uh, light repeating blaster mounted under it so even though you're in a vehicle you're using a weapon that's a personal scale so you're using range to determine the difficulty not uh silhouette right, difference right. which which also could be used to represent in some cases point defense weaponry on you know, smaller ships. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Although um, you're going to be, uh, except with like land speeders and air speeders, most uh, most weaponry is going to have to be starship scale to hurt other starships. But right. you're right on some of the very small ships or against armor zero um, vehicles. Um, point defense weaponry could definitely be um, be represented on personal scale. Yeah. But um, um, yeah. yeah, so the answer to the question, yeah. Um, they, you would use the uh, silhouette table, and because people are so it'd be incredibly tiny compared to your ship, it's going to be a hard check. Okay. All right. Uh, the last question we have uh, this evening on starships uh, mm-hmm. comes from uh, – it was repeated by both Eldritch Fire and Sanguinous Rex, who had questions about ship speed. Absolutely. They say, ships with a speed three to four – don't list rules about getting to long distance, only getting to medium, which costs you two maneuvers. Now, ships with a speed of five to six can get to long distance with two maneuvers. So how do ships at three to four speed get to long distance? I mean, do we basically say that for two maneuvers, they get to medium distance, then next turn, long distance is now medium, so they can get there with another two maneuvers? How how does that work? Um, Actually, if I'm not mistaken, next turn, long distance for them would be short range, I think. Hmm. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh, this before it's only two. But yes, the idea is basically once they get to medium range, um, then you would, or once they've closed the range, um, then you redetermine how far away the th- the thing is. So at that point, if they um get to medium range, um, they are within shore range of it on their next turn. So. The reason it doesn't list the rules for getting to long range is that they can't do it in a single turn. Right. There's no way to, so we don't do it in there. And, and obviously, when the new turn starts, you recalculate your distance to the object. Because that object could have moved as well. That is also true. That is definitely also true. So, yeah. So, the re- yeah. So, the sh- uh, again, I guess the short answer to it is the reason it isn't listed is there should be no way for a speed three to four ship to get to something that's within starts within long range of it in a single turn. Easy. 
yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh wait, and no, that that is it. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Sam, the ba- last big chunk of questions we had, of course, mm-hmm. um, is about the force. Absolutely. Now we chatted with Steve Horvath, um, uh, I guess the episode before last, mm-hmm. um, uh, about the force for a, a pretty good bit. And the Edge of the Empire core rulebook has a hefty chapter on Force users in this setting with Force powers, talents. But among the heated discussions about the Force, uh, a lot of which we had with Steve, um, yeah. several good questions did emerge um, relating to specific mechanical questions around Force use. Um, so uh, Darth GM comes back at us and uh, mind tricks us, then uh, Force slams us into a couple of questions on Force powers. <laughs> Um, it's not very nice of him. Well, yeah, he's that kind of guy. Um, yeah, well, you know, I just—he's he, a persistent questioner. He—he he is. He is. Um, you know, we just fr- frankly, we have to take him with a grain of salt. You know, he does it. He does. He does a segment for the show and thinks he owns it. What can I say? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm sure. He, I'm sure he's great. <laughs> yeah, you know, not really. Not really. Sure, you know, he's—he's—he's no, he's no, a, he's really. a, he's a bit of a jerk. I'm just going to say, I've met the oh. man. You know, I've had the chance to game with him, and you know, yeah, you know, I, I just, you know, you know. He, he always plays the uh, two scimitar wielding dark elf. Yeah, completely, totally. Oh, I just, you know, just I just. Uh, you hear me, Phil? I'm talking to you. Yeah, no, Phil's a Phil's an amazing man. Um, okay, his two questions are first and foremost for the influence force power. Uh, the first upgrade, which you know, ye, ye old mind trick. Um, what exactly happens after the duration of the mind trick expires? Does the subject continue to think what he was told? Does the target realize he's been duped? And if so, why didn't the Stormies on Tatooine put out an APB for Luke and Ben? Yeah, well, it is, that is a, a good question. And the answer is sort of that it actually depends on the situation with Mind Trick or the uh, for influence force power. But it is very much the Jedi Mind Trick. Yes. Um, so in the Tatooine case, um, to, to take that example first, um, the situation from the Stormtroopers' view was that this was a minor traffic stop. He was doing it 20 what 20 30 times an hour just stopping everyone who came into town right and just asking them questions so realistically if you were in his shoes how many of those uh stops would you remember you know five minutes after uh the uh stop was completed or even like a couple minutes after the stop was over <laughs> and you had moved on to the next jawas trying to uh, smuggle uh smuggle broken protocol droids into town or something um so, however, if you use Mind Trick, for example, to convince someone to lock themselves into a broom closet so you could sneak by them, or try and convince them that you were not actually a Wookiee, you were actually Grand Moff, Moff Tarkin, um, then as soon as that wears off, they're going to wonder what the heck just happened. He's, they're going to be like, wait, Tarkin, wasn't he like five minutes here five minutes ago? And... Is he normally two meters tall and covered in fur? You know, <laughs> so sorry. What I'm trying, I guess, what I'm trying to get at is the idea that um, the mind trick convinces somebody to believe something that isn't true, and then when it wears off, whether or not they continue believing that entirely depends on how plausible or how important it was to them in the first place. So the guy who um, the guy locked in the broom closet is suddenly going to wonder why he's locked in the broom closet and he's going to think back over what just happened. But the guy just making a traffic stop or let's say you're just trying to sneak by them and you like there's a noise in the other direction and he goes off in the other direction. You know, after he finishes looking for it, he didn't find that noise. But 
he has no reason to doubt that there was a noise there in the first place just because he right. can't find what caused it. You know, maybe it was a cat or, sorry, a, um, a, a womp rat or something. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. So it's – so it de- entirely depends on what um, what you're trying to get them to believe in the first place, how wary they are, and so and everything like that. It's, so it's not infallible and it actually takes some creative – you um it tr- takes some creative thinking to use correctly i would say see now for the stormtroopers on tatooine i always thought in my back of my head that even if the guy realized wait a you know the classic meme you know god those were the droids i was looking for <laughs> yeah. you know i mean what's he gonna do go running to darth vader and say lord vader i screwed up <laughs> <laughs> throw himself on the dark lord's tender mercies it's like please sir take pity on me i'll find him this time yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean if yeah just saying if i was a stormtrooper i would have kept my mouth shut just throwing, just throwing that out there you know i i actually like that answer a lot <laughs> um i could see well, there were like two of them right there two or three of them and all of them after look at each other like I, I didn't see any droids. I didn't see droids. Did you see any droids? No. Nope. Nope. Okay, so Darth GM's next question. Uh, the move power. He wants to know, are successes on the discipline check added to damage? That seems to be a basic attribute of ranged attacks, and the description for using move in such a way says it follows the normal rules for ranged attacks. Um, so, okay, well, that's the first part of his question, So, mm-hmm. so of, 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 of his move question. So is, is that true or, or not? So it, he's wondering, basically, does any do? Sorry. So he's wondering if basically anything, all the rules that apply to ranged attacks, like defense, um, dodge, sidestep, that sort of thing, apply. Well, no. His thing is like it, oh. successes on the discipline check. Do those get added to damage? Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I was looking. I was actually looking at the wrong notes. I apologize. Um, <laughs> no, they do apply. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. So that boom that 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 suddenly makes move uh, a little more useful. Which is mm-hmm. which is nice. Now the second part of this is concerning the attack roll itself. Well, okay, that's um, where I was getting confused. Uh, see, see, see what see I, I see what I see what I did there, huh? Yeah. He says concerning the attack roll itself, the difficulty is not the range, but the size of the object. Mm-hmm. You know, so unlike unlike a normal range attack, you know, for move, the difficulty is based on the size of the object. So silhouette zero object difficulty zero. You know, straight up roll, at least one success, and you're plinking a guy for five damage? Yep. So, attacking multiple silhouette zero objects, a la, you know, like, almost like a force autofire, um, only one difficulty? Yes, actually it is. Um, so, some of you may, re- some of you probably remember um, the original force move from the beta, where there was no difficulty associated with it. It was not a discipline <laughs> check, and... Um, there were many, many stardust, uh, many, many Millennium Falcons being dropped on many, many poor, unsuspecting people. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so of course, this is the evolution out of that, where we definitely added in a uh, difficulty, and by doing so, by making it like any other ranged attack, we also offered the up the opportunity to, um, to inc- to have dodge come into play, sidestep, um, cover any of those defensive tricks. That armor. Armor. Yeah. Um, any of the, any defensive things that people would have could, they could now use. Now, in exchange for that, we still wanted to keep the silhouette five thing where it's, it is the only easy, sorry, simple attack range attack you can make in the game. 
And then if you auto fire, you can make it an easy attack instead. Right. And um, yeah, no, we but we wanted to keep it that way because even at its best, um, throwing something now that you combine a discipline check with the force power check, so you have to get all the light side points you need mm-hmm. to actually lift the stuff up and move it the distance you need to. Plus, you need to hit with your discipline check. So it actually makes it, you know, I wouldn't say worse than a regular ranged attack, but there are more things that can go wrong. So the um, so the trade-off with that is that you can throw small objects and you can have a very good chance of succeeding on your discipline check. But you still have to make sure that you um, you still have to make sure that you also roll enough light side points to actually use it. Well, yeah, and I, I, I temper this with the fact that your average human with average armor is going to have a soak of four. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, so you're not you're not even typically going to hardly ever be plinking a guy for five damage. That that is actually also a very very good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the five damage is where we is where we start with weapons, with light blaster pistols and holdout blasters. And it's not, inc- you know, it's it's good. It's good for what it is, but it doesn't, uh, definitely does not get the job done super effectively. Unless you're adding successes to the damage total, which, as we just, you just point out, could very well happen. Well, and it, absolutely. And it can help, but um, even, unless your discipline check is phenomenal, and then you're probably relatively high level and should be doing some pretty sweet stuff with it to begin with. Mm. But um, unless your check is phenomenal, you're probably adding two to three additional um, successes. Um, and also, the more successes you roll, by the way the dice work, the less advantages you're generating, which is the less additional hits that you were trying to go for by making the autifier thing in the first place. Gotcha. Makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, so... Don't don't but don't let me dissuade people. It is definitely good, and people should definitely pick up, uh, you know, things like Darth Vader did, um, com- power converters and pieces of wall mounting and all that, and chuck them at their opponents. It yeah, I love that scene. <laughs> the, the, that's <laughs> yeah. the moment you. That's the moment you know he's just screwing with him. Yeah. <laughs> oh oh, he's just been playing all this time. This, this whole time he's just been screwing. He's just screwing with him now. Luke never even stood a chance. Oh man, is he? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, speaking of a move again, um, Alien270 had a question. He wants to know, the move power allows you to move an object of silhouette zero or one with the upgrade. Does this allow you to move creatures? And if so, could this be representative of the classic force slam, force push, or force pull? Yes. Um, It it does, in fact, allow you to move creatures. And um, that was the idea with move. And we sort of wanted to lump everything together Again, with the sort of overriding goal of making the force powers a little more narrative, a little more um, based on description, and so we left things like that a little more open, and you know, also subject to GM's approval if things get too out of hand. But uh, barring that, um, yeah, the uh, the move power definitely allows you to pick up another person and move them, and possibly even toss them into a wall, though. Now, if you did that, and this, is, this, this has to beg the question then, if you did that, would the damage that person suffered be based on their own silhouette? Yes. Okay. Um, I, would, I would say so. I, w- I would definitely say so. Although, at that point, since you're actually making a ranged attack, you might, have to, uh, you might actually have to roll to hit with that. And in 
Um, and I say might because that's a situation that's definitely up to the GM. Um, but if I was running the game, I would have them roll to hit, and they wouldn't be hitting per se, but it would be the picking up the person and slamming them into something that's uh, tough enough to actually uh, deal damage as opposed to just, you know, knocking them back and knocking them over. Well, I had a situation in one of my games once where I had a player that wanted to pick a guy up and slam him into the ground. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was like, at the time, I was like, I don't need you to make a discipline check, you know, to, to, that's not, you know, that's not a tack roll where it, it's the ground, you know. Yeah, no, that's it, it, fair, it's, it's hard, it's hard, it's wide. But in the same session, the guy picked up with somebody else and wanted to hurl him into another NPC. And yep. I was like, okay, discipline check. Why? <laughs> like, well, it's a lot harder to hit it's, the... It's, it's a lot harder to hit the... Yeah, you know, I'm just... Yeah. yeah. So... Okay. No, I think that's a perfect example of it. Um, and then conversely, actually one of our playtest games, um, where I was actually the player for once, um, I one of my fellow players who was a Force sensitive um, took my character and Force moved him into the uh, pilot's chair of a crashing Corvette. So that we could uh, level the thing out in time. And there, there was no discipline check involved. He just had to make sure he got enough light side points. Gotcha. Um, which, again, also goes back to the whole thing that, you know, if, if you're rolling for um, light side points to begin with, there is also that possibility that that's going to go wrong. Okay. Um, or, you know, you'll roll dark side and then you have to make that choice. Okay. Um, the next question we have, you've already answered, um, but I think we should just give it credence. Uh, Mr. Sure. Mr. Baldwin, uh, regarding the move power, wanted to know, does range defense apply to objects thrown with the move ta- power? Can talents like dodge and sidestep be used to increase the difficulty of the discipline check? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think you've uniformly answered that, yes. Yes. Um, his other part of it was, is there any way to resist having an object torn from a character's hands with the move power? No, that is a that is a good question. Um, rules rules is written. Um, they don't have to make a uh, opposed check or any kind of check to do so. Um, and that rule is def is definitely designed with like say, uh, Darth. You see you see the scene like Darth Vader versus Han Solo. Right. Um, Darth just takes uh, the blaster pistol, and there's not much Han gets to do about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there, it doesn't seem much efforts involved. Or um, some of the uh, video games in the EU, um, those of you out there who's played Jedi Academy, for example, um, oh, disarming yeah. your, yep, disarming those stormtroopers. You, I could do that all day, right? Yep. Yep. But um, that being said, uh, I, you know, I recognize that uh, sometimes you have climactic fights and you don't just want the, uh, you don't just, the GM just doesn't want the players to whip, rip the gun out of the guy's hand and sort of spoil the suspense, or at least not without a little effort. <laughs> so I would say that would be a good case that you could use an opposed discipline versus athletics check, for example. Would you be, would you be opposed to discipline versus uh, the, uh, uh, the weapon skill involved in the person wielding the weapon? I think you could make an argument for that. I think you absolutely could. Um, his skill with the weapon represents how well he's able to hold on to it. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was a fellow force user, user, it might be discipline versus discipline, in fact. Ooh. Yeah. And so the idea there is definitely, you know, the, the tools are there for um, opposed checks and um, competitive checks and so forth. So, you know, if the, if the GM and the players feel that there's a good case to be made for an opposed, um, you know, an opposed or a check or just a regular check that, that enhances the situation and doesn't slow it down, then 
they should by all means they should do it i think that would be awesome um if on the other hand if you're just ripping blast rifles out of stormtroopers hands you know what that's tough for the stormtroopers there's more of them gotcha um our next question comes from Jay Jester OC, who actually had a design question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, some people are already, and this, this kind of relates, uh, relates to what we were just talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Some people are already creating house rules for the Force because they believe that not giving targets the ability to resist Force users makes, uh, makes them too powerful. How has the ability for Force users to perform acts that can't be resisted been balanced? Absolutely. No, no. And it's, and it's a very good question. So... I mean, we talked before that um, if you feel the need, you definitely can house rule these sorts of things. Um, but the balancing factor that we that we factored into it when it first started out was that um, the cost that it takes to become a force user um, in experience. Mm-hmm. So, bog standard force user, he's gonna it's gonna cost him twenty experience if he's if it's his first. Um, his second specialization is going to cost him 20 experience just to pick that up and all that gets him is force rating one and he can't do a thing with it it's going to be another 10 experience just to get a bit get a basic power and the basic powers are not terrible but they're certainly very limited um everything beyond that's another 10 to 15 a shot usually and um and some um, sometimes more for really good upgrades and then or actually Maybe not. I'd I'd have to uh, look through them, but it there is um, there is a definitely an ex, um, experience point cost in each of those upgrades. That if you're giving somebody a regular experience amount per session for like fifteen experience, um, they're only buying one of those upgrades per session, and coupled that to the fact that anytime somebody buys into a force power and gets something along that. They're not buying some other ability that could be really useful for them. So right. if you have a guy who buys up move and just keep buy, keeps buying it up and gets like all the great move upgrades, but he's only force rating one, um, it doesn't even matter if he's willing to use the dark side points whenever they come up. He's always willing to flip that destiny point. A lot of the time, he's only getting one force point, period. Mm. And... Um, that's actually some another thing we've tested. Um, that same force user I just I described with throwing uh, throwing characters into the pilot seat. One of his big limiting factors is because he's invested all his experience into force the move and the um, uh, mostly the move power, but a little bit in the sense power. He still hasn't been able to buy force rating two on the on the force sensitive tree yet. Um, so he might go three turns and all he ever rolls is one one point, whether it's light side or dark side, and nothing ever gets to happen um, because he's too far away from them or he needs one power to uh, pick them up and another power to move them at long range or, well, you get the idea. Right. Um, so the big, balance, um, the big balancing factor is definitely that... You have to. It takes a lot of experience to become very good at force powers, and compared to that, another player could have just invested all of their um, all of their points into just being really good with a blaster rifle, or going first in the initiative slot, and they'll still be able to do just as amazing things as that force user. Um, hmm. Yeah, but. Um, but that that being said, again, like we had already talked about, if the uh, if the 
GM feels that he wants to have, uh, you know, have an NPC resist a force power or he wants it to be imposed check, you shouldn't feel like he's breaking the game by imposing those um, additional limitations. He should just be, you know, upfront with his players as to why this is happening. And, um, you know, ideally this is a collaborative thing between the players and the GM a little bit. You know, the GM's not doing it to penalize the players. He's doing it to make that, um, he's doing that to make this next encounter a lot more interesting. Um, or to be perfectly honest, in some cases, like if the player's trying to disarm Darth Vader, for example, the GM could also just say no. (laughs) Well, you know, I think you may have actually answered the next question, uh, just spot on. Because oh, the, because another design inquiry that we had was echoed by John D and a few others who wanted to know why the extreme XP costs just to get into the forced exile specialization and one basic power, which is going to cost you fifty XP. Right, and yeah, so the uh, and yeah, we did answer that. Although it should be um, thirty experience, ten to get the power, twenty get the exile specialization. Right, um, um, but as we but. I mean, I think I think think you've answered that question is it's 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 there for balance reasons. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Because force use is powerful and there's a lot you can do that's unopposed um, or or not resistible. And so, yeah, it's that that's why, boys and girls, that's why. Yeah. Sorry about that. I thought you had said 50 experience. Um, Uh, That's well, that that was what was in John's uh, question. Uh, Oh, sure, sure, sure. My my mistake. Um, Yeah. And although. To be fair to John, as we talked about, you probably would need to invest about 50 experience before your force power is actually doing some pretty interesting things. That's very true. Very true. Okay, so next up, um, Donovan Morningfire comes uh, back at us. Um, again, always curious about the, the, the beta changes. He, he wanted to know, um, on adversaries, uh, for the Emperor's Hand and the Forsaken Jedi, their entry for force powers makes it seem like they can activate the basic ability of a power, plus various upgrades, all for the cost of a single force point, uh, specifically the range upgrades. Uh, this was very much how the force powers operated prior to the Week 2 beta update, but they were changed in the update. Is this just an error in the final core rulebook, or is this how it works for NPCs? This is how this works for those two NPCs, specifically. Gotcha. So, um it's not an error, but it is a simple. It is a simplification. Um, one of the things that we wanted to do with all of the adversaries was get all their pertinent rules that somebody's going to need in a, an encounter into one very small section, and so sometimes we s- would simplify the abilities. So, it, as M- Mr. Morningfire notes, the uh, the force powers are a lot simpler for them, and honestly, they're going to be act- able to activate a lot more interesting stuff a lot more easily. But that's done deliberately because the GM has a bunch of NPCs to keep track of and he's not just juggling one player character like the players are. Which So simpler force powers for them. Now, that being said, um, if, the, uh, if the GM is doing and possibly if we were ever doing a, like a named force user nemesis type character, somebody will... I realize um, the Forsaken Gem, the Forsaken Jedi, and the Emperor's Hand are both very powerful characters, but they're also still nameless characters. They're still just generic profiles we're offering right, up. If we're right. ever going to do a named one, like Vader or Mara Jade or um, some other inter- really interesting character, um, that would be a good place to stat out the full Force powers um, as they work for everybody, and the GM can actually balance all those because. 
if the character's that important, the GMs could be expected to put a little more work into running them. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, Salomar Dree wants to know, uh, why don't the various force power control upgrades have distinctive names to differentiate them from each other? Uh, this seems to be the only area in the game where this didn't happen. Well, um, the reason for it is that all of the uh, control upgrades are control upgrades, which is the type of upgrade. Um, so we wanted to group them by type as opposed to, um, as opposed to making up a separate name for each control upgrade. So... The idea is that any control upgrade, quote-unquote, is going to be an upgrade that modifies how the innate power actually works, whereas range upgrades increase the range of the power, um, strength increases the effect of that basic power, that sort of thing. Gotcha, gotcha. And so you can say, you know, I've got this power with control three control upgrades. I can go down right. the tree and see exactly what that means. Yep, yep. And the control upgrades are the only one that you're going to have to keep an eye on which ones you have. But um, all control upgrades are always going to work differently anyway. So Right, right. Okay. Um, last force question we have. Uh, right. Again, Phil just won't leave us alone. Um, <laughs> uh, Darth GM has a sensitive question. Um, the sense power. And this is, this is one that actually came up in my games more than once. Uh, the strength upgrade says when using senses ongoing effects, you upgrade the pool twice instead of once. Now, this upgrade is linked directly to the third control upgrade, which allows you to commit a force die to upgrade an attack check once, and that can be done once around. Am I correct in my thinking that you're actually upgrading the attack check twice because you have the strength upgrade to get that particular control upgrade? He is exactly correct. Um, we just couldn't word it any other way because if we worded it any other way, it'd probably get more confusing. If we said you upgrade your attack check twice in the... Um, that basic control upgrade, people would be wondering, do you do it up three times? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, gotcha. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. Nope, but he is exactly right. That is exactly how it works. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that makes perfect sense. Okay. So, Sam, that ends the, the show-planned questions. Do you have a few minutes maybe to get a couple of random questions out of the way that maybe aren't directly related to... Uh, uh, the, the material within the core rulebook itself specifically i can do, i can do a couple minutes definitely okay um <clears throat> uh the first one is going to uh come from stacy gamer girl uh who uh asked when designing star wars edge of the empire what sources of inspiration did you find from sources outside the star wars universe that helped you when designing and writing edge of the empire um, if you if you could hack Edge of the Empire to play in different homebrew settings, which one setting would you use the Edge of the Empire system to play? And I I know it would be very easy to take Edge of the Empire and run a Firefly game using it, just as, just as an example. <laughs> well, um, I think uh, Stacy makes makes a good observation that uh, that Firefly and Serenity were definitely um, one of the examples, um, although certainly only one of many. Oh man. Um, Different non-Star Wars examples. Thinking back to the uh, the very beginning of all this, um, oh, you know, a lot of different sci-fi shows go into it. Um, um, I was a big fan of Fi um, not Firefly, um, Farscape when I was a kid. If anyone out there actually remembers that, oh yeah. Um, similar idea, a bunch of ex-cons and um, miscreants, different species traveling on a ship, um, having to interact with each other. Um, a lot of weird stuff that they run into. Um, 
and a lot but of and the, a lot of Muppets. Yes, see, it's a very lot it's, of Muppets. it's like Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I, I love that show. Um, and yeah, you know, it like it it was even more whimsical and fantastical than Star Wars was, if that's possible. But um, at the same time, the big one was you had interactions between different species and different character types that were very different. They were they really were like a group of PCs. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um as far what would I hack it to play in a different homebrew setting? Um honestly it's a good question. It hasn't come up yet. I don't know. Um I I honestly I might just make up my own setting if I was going to use that system. I think you could do a lot of different ones with it. Totally. Yeah. But yeah, just not something uh something that's come up yet, but I I think you definitely could do it. We're having, we're having too much fun just playing in Star Wars, Stacy. <laughs> well, you know, when you're play testing it, you're you do kind of have to do Star Wars. <laughs> All right. Um well, okay, well on that note, um Blind Pumpkin had a question. Uh wanted to know he said, I understand fluff-wise this new line was designed with the original trilogy in mind, and I'm all for that. But yeah. I wonder if, when designing the crunch, you guys thought about the other eras of the franchise and the different the- feel they have or may have, um, or if the rules are more focused on the cinematic style of the classic movies. Uh, for example, and, and I'm sorry if I'm stepping into unreleased content territory here, he says, uh, but the lightsaber duels from The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi have a somewhat different feel <laughs> from the, those of the prequels. Um, was the game designed to encompass both styles of play? Yeah, no, I, it's a it's a really interesting question. And um, without talking about, you know, too much stuff, of, I mean, too much about what we plan on doing in the future. Um, but I think one of the reasons the duels feel different in the different movies this is kind of pulling back um point looking behind the screen a little bit is that the different levels of film technology and the different filmmaking skills you had available at the time right <laughs> of um of course i mean so beyond that though um i think i think the big trick that all the best lightsaber duels have um whether they were ones they could do with a with like all the modern choreography they had in the prequels or if they were doing the ones where I mean like in a new hope where it's Ben versus Vader and you know you could tell they were they were they were doing some really interesting stuff but at the same time they're very limited um based on what they could accomplish and that you know not to knock it at all it's just you know what technology film technology was back in the day but I think what's the the core thing is that a good lightsaber duel always has the um always has the like the narrative compel the compelling narrative going on with it and so whatever we end up doing with that we're going to want to um have the um the mechanics be narratively interesting as well and thematically interesting as well as mechanically interesting and that kind of goes for pretty much whatever um whatever whatever it applies um i mean whatever whatever stuff we are doing we never want to create a rule system that's just mechanical and has no like narrative or thematic aspects to it that tie it into the movies but at the same time we don't want to create mechanics that are just narrative or thematic and have no choices or interesting like decisions available if at all possible we want to address both now, when it comes to the um, sort of the different feels of the different movies, right, 
Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's too crazy. I don't think it's too wild to speculate that um, Edge of the Empire feels a lot like A New Hope. And Age of Rebellion might feel a lot more like Empire Strikes Back when you actually start seeing more of the Rebellion. And finally, Force and Destiny might have a lot to tie into Return of the Jedi. But I think what's interesting about those three movies is that those themes never go away, right? Yeah. In, yeah, in Edge of the Empire's themes of scum and villainy and smugglers and bounty hunters, those are in all three movies. They're almost most prevalent in the first movie. But then later on, um, you still get them in Cloud City and you still get them in Jabba's Palace. And um, the rebellion is really minor in um, – not minor, but – you know, all you see are like a bu- like a few dozen guys and a dozen X-Wings in the first movie. And then in the second movie, you get Hoth and the Rebel base. And that builds up all the way to the huge Rebel fleet in Return of the Jedi. Um, it's always there. It just becomes more and more prominent. Just the same as the Force is a relatively... It's undescribed and it doesn't apply a whole lot in the first movie except in a few critical points. But then by movie three, it's it's the, huge. It's the focal point. It's screen time. It's screen. Uh-huh. It's what you're describing, man. Is is screen time? It's it's how much screen time from a, from a from a percentage perspective did the rebellion get in episode four? Not a lot. You know, uh-huh. in episode you know five, it got the majority of screen time. Yeah. You know, and in episode six, the force and lightsabers and everything else that got the majority of screen time. Absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, so. So, yeah, I think the um, that is kind of what we want to do is have all three movies have a different feel. I mean, not all three movies, all three games have a different <laughs> feel based on those three movies. But we're also doing it confident that none of the, uh, you know, these games are all prominent in the entirety of the original trilogy. And honestly, I think they're prominent in the entirety of the prequel trilogy as well. Those, those stuff we're talking about, we always talk in terms of the original trilogy, but you, I could say similar things about a lot of what goes on in the prequel as well. Sure. You know, maybe replace Rebellion with uh, Grand Army of the Republic. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Sam, um, thank you uh, for all your responses, sir. Um, and once again, taking time to to, to talk to us um, to give your time to answer some of these questions. We had we had listeners, we had so many questions submitted, so many, and we we didn't have time to get to all of them. Um, obviously, we stuck on the ones that we knew uh, Sam and Jay would be able to talk about um, and, and the ones that we knew might have the, the biggest impact to our immediate play. Um, uh, but th- there's a lot more. Sam, hopefully uh, you'll uh, be able to grace us with your presence in the future, maybe to, to tackle additional questions at a later time. Oh, I'd hardly call it gracing, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to talk you up, man. Go with it. What, what, are, you, what are you doing here? <laughs> no, 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 but seriously, um, I I would love to come on the show again and uh, help out with a little uh, little Q and A. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, heck, you're uh, asking me to talk about a, uh, this, um, this game that I enjoy as much as I've ever enjoyed anything. And, 
I will not. I don't pass up a chance to talk about it. Are you crazy? <laughs> well, you know, hey, it's like it's like Jay said earlier. It's like you know, gosh, oh. Sam, we're we're kind of experts on this. It's kind of cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and hopefully the next time we do this, um, we'll have even more questions about even more interesting stuff that's um, coming up that we can talk about. You know, I don't doubt it. Excellent, so, Mr. Stewart. Thank you very much for your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And there we have it. Uh, Once again, guys, I know I said this during the interview, but we had a lot of questions come in from a lot of folks that we just flat out did not have the time to get to. Um, And we really do want to appreciate all of you that took the time to send in questions uh, to respond via email, PM, post it up on both our forums and on the the, the FFG community forums. We do greatly appreciate it. Um, And we want to know what other questions you have, Uh, not just for the designers and developers of the game, but also for us and our takes on things. More importantly, we'd like to know what you'd like us to talk about. You know, we say this frequently. We have a lot of shows uh, that are in the pipe right now, a lot of stuff on the docket. But the order in which we tackle it, we kind of have an entire book to go through at this point, is really up to you. What do you want us to tackle first? Do you want to get us get us get us talking about starship combat? Do you want to get us talking about individual careers or individual specializations, skill usages, equipment? You tell us. Get your request to us. Head to the forums at www.d20radio.com slash forums. Email us, gmchris at d20radio.com or gmdave at d20radio.com and let us know what you would like us to tackle. And we shall. It was a great pleasure to get to talk to both Sam and Jay about all this, and we really do want to thank them for their time. But now, it is time to go. This is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. And if Dave were here, he'd tell you to keep them dice a-rollin'. This podcast and related website are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, Walt Disney Corporation, 20th Century Fox, or Fantasy Flight Games. It is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names, pictures, or references to any Star Wars vehicles, characters, or other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited, Fantasy Flight Games, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including in audio, visual, or textual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast and the Gamer Nation LLC. Hi, Sam. This is Twilight Goodness, and I'd like to come on to ask one last question. And um, what it is, is I'm wondering for all of those people out there who have said that this is the best game that they have ever played in the entire universe. Now, we're talking about the whole entire universe here, whole freaking universe. I mean, billions and billions of galaxies and then billions of stars in those galaxies. And then how many of them have planets? that could support life and that do and certainly those planets have games so that's a lot of games potentially out there and they're saying this is the best out there how how accurate do you think these um people's assessment are do you think their assertion is potentially correct yeah (laughs) it's true it's true